Hello and welcome to the Francis Farmer Show. This is our annual Seattle International Film Festival podcast extravaganza, although a little less uh, extra of a vaganza <laughs> this year. Roughly uh, half. Or a third. <laughs> <laughs> As, uh, for a variety of reasons, we collectively... Uh, did not uh, see as many films as if this year as we have in years past, but we did still see a lot. And uh, joining me is uh, Evan Morgan. Hello. And Ryan Swen. Hello. And we're going to talk about some of the movies that we did see. But first of all, I kind of want to get you guys' thoughts about the film, the film festival in general, because um, we all had kind of a similar similarly disappointing experience with it this year and i'm wondering what you think the reasons for that are is it the festival is it us is it a combination <laughs> of the two what 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 happened this year i mean with each <laughs> passing year i'm i'm confident that i'm getting grouchier uh so i cop to some responsibility here but i do think that the festival this year uh, does seem to have avoided programming a bunch of things that, in my mind, they could have programmed. Uh, for example, uh, the great uh, Nobuhiku Obayashi movie that he just made, Hanukkah Tommy, <laughs> would have been a great addition for the festival. There were many things that played at Berlin that didn't play. And so uh, I don't think this is a year, unlike last year, actually, which I think was a somewhat weaker year for movies overall, where there's just nothing to select. Um, I think in this case, they just, I think their programmers are not always the most attuned to what's happening out uh, in the world of other film festivals and what's interesting and what filmmakers uh, who are maybe not top tier can level filmmakers, but interesting people who are doing interesting work that would be able to have a film shown at SIF. Um, I just don't think they're tuned into that world. And I think it's it's pretty rich out there and they could have got a lot more uh, films that I think were interesting. And I just think that uh, they often seem to take what is easily available. And I think uh, a little more digging around, a little more hunting, uh, a little more attunement uh, to what's out there would have made for a, a more interesting festival for me. What about you, Ryan? I agree with that. I will preface this by knowing that I think it, my, lack of engagement with SIF this year was a result of a number of factors, perhaps the most significant being that I graduated and had many end of year things to tend to for my schoolwork. But regardless, I think that even to your point about top level filmmakers or filmmakers that would have played a can or something like that, I think even there they've, they're really not attuned or un seemingly unwilling to program even the less significant, but still somewhat notable films like the like Sergei Lovsnitsa's *A Gentle Creature* or uh, Philippe Gorel's *Lover for a Day*, whose whose work was mentioned in the introduction to a film that was programmed, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> but the th things like that, and of course, the Berlin films, some of the ones that I was interested to see, I put in a before the programming was announced a list of films that I was hoping would be there, Hope Against Hope, and for all but one of them, I was uh, sadly correct in my, in the sense that they wouldn't be programs like Prototype or An Elephant Sitting Still. And it's just 
perhaps the more the most notable thing is that, or the most damning thing is that, I just didn't go to many. The ones, the films that I did see, which I had a fairly, which I was fairly sure I would like, pretty much all of them I did like to some extent or another. But the problem was that just nothing was really compelling in the festival aside. There, there was so little that was compelling, and that's the real problem that they they aren't able to get engagement from from people who care about what the fil- what films they're seeing that's they aren't able to get engagement for things that could be that could be surprise hits among among cinephiles and and that's really the most dispiriting thing about all of this especially this year yeah i think uh i think you're both right to a certain extent i also for me uh, this is more of a problem for me than it is for you guys, but just logistically, SIF was a real problem this year because of the way that it's programmed, everything is stretched out over over 25 days, that there were no occasions in which there were like more than one movie that I was interested in playing at a time. And because I live like 45 minutes away from the city, uh, it's not really worth it for me to spend an hour and a half driving to go see one movie in downtown Seattle. So a lot of the stuff that I was interested in, I ended up skipping just because I, I didn't want to drive all the way down there just to see one movie. I ended up seeing only three movies in actual theaters at the festival out of the like 11 total movies that I saw. So. Um, I mean, I live in the city, and I think my number was the same, and they were both <laughs> movies that were made in 1950 and 1930. So. <laughs> but I also wonder if uh, if part of the problem is is us and a reflection of kind of the international festival circuit in general. Like, the kind of films that get buzz uh, tend to be a certain kind of film, and SIF in particular this year seems to have gone out of its way to program films by women directors and uh, by from underrepresented countries or, or ethnic groups. And those are not the films that are getting a lot of buzz on film Twitter. Uh, and so they're not movies that we would necessarily be excited for when we're flipping through the program. So I wonder if it's, you know, our own failure as cinephiles not to be more adventurous and going to seek out stuff that we haven't heard of. I mean, I I take your point on that. I I think that's fair. Although I think it gets to a structural problem that SIF has, which is that their programming is not designed in a way that gives someone who doesn't know the names and doesn't know the films, like a reasonable and reliable roadmap through their programming. And so I could not tell you, I mean, what you're saying is correct based on what they told me at the press event Mm -hmm. that we went to, but like, I could not tell you which of those films I should really be prioritizing to see. There isn't a programmer who reliably is picking interesting films. There isn't a, you know, sidebar of a certain kind of films where you're seeing the same uh, you know, filmmakers or the same, you know, stylistic uh, traits in the films year over year. It's all just kind of one big buffet. And, uh, you know, maybe shame on us for not digging in a little bit more, but I'd like a tasting menu, please. 
yeah i think that's fair and like the one the one program i i did uh uh partake in and it ended up being like the vast majority of the films that i saw at sif was their uh their china star program china stars program which is uh contemporary chinese films basically and uh they have like a dozen films in that program this year, and I saw I think eight of eight or nine of them, uh, most of which I liked quite a bit. Uh, but to to your point, I don't really see kind of a programming philosophy behind them, other than that uh, they're all either directed by women or about women or both. Which it seems to me that rather than than like a, a discerning kind of programmer picking the very best in Chinese film that's out there, it's more just them looking at the names and the plot summary and programming it. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah that pretty seems, much. Yeah. <laughs> like, what happened? <laughs> yeah, and maybe that's a little harsh, especially for a program that, that on the whole I, I really liked this year, so... I don't know. Maybe I'm being unfair to Sif. It, it would not be the first time. <laughs> uh, one thing I do want to point out just before we transition to the, into the actual films is that I think that especially this year, the other theaters in Seattle, namely Grand Illusion, and especially Northwest Film Forum, have been seemingly very strong in, in programming the films that we would be normally set for before or even during the festival, for instance, the day after, uh, and all of the three Hong films, and Before We Vanish, and Ismail's Ghosts by Deplechan. I think that those are all films that would have found some, hopefully would have found some birth in the festival, but didn't end up because the other theaters were more on the ball in programming them. Well, Do you agree with that? Uh, I don't because in in the past, SIF has blocked other theaters from playing movies so that they could play it at the film festival. Uh, the the best example of that is uh, Mountains Made Apart a few years ago. Yes, opened everywhere else in North America in January, and but not in Seattle, and nobody would tell us why until it was like the headliner film to launch their inaugural China Stars program. Uh, and I mean, if they wanted to play uh, Claire's camera and the day after, they could have prevented the film form from doing it. They just chose not to. I think. I mean, I don't have inside info on that, but given given their history and also the fact that the Grand Illusion and the Northwest Film Form, basically every time you ask them, say we get basically whatever SIF mm-hmm. passes on. That's what we are able to program because they just can't compete with them financially. I think, I think it's a pretty good bet that they passed on all of those movies that played in those theaters in the spring. Maybe that that's even more disturbing than if they had just been outbid it, that they passed on, on really, really strong films like this is even with their wide selections, even more of a depressing thought. Well, good on the Grand Illusion and the Northwest Film Forum for their excellent programming. That is true. All right, so on that uh, uh, cheerful note, let's uh, start talking about some of the films that we did see at SIF and what we thought about them. So, uh, Evan, do you want to go first? 
Sure. So uh, somehow, uh, my favorite film, Ed Sif, a festival not known for the richness of its avant-garde programming, uh, is an experimental film, uh, a feature by uh, a filmmaker that I was really only vaguely aware of previously, uh, Johan Lerf, uh, and his film is called Star, uh, which is somewhat like annoyingly spelled, I don't even know if spelled is the right word, with a little star, like emoticon. Um, but anyways, it, I think what struck me so much with the experience of seeing Star was that like this is actually what a festival is meant to do, which is kind of a novel idea uh, sometimes around SIF, but introduced me to a new filmmaker that I really wasn't aware of and a new kind of uh, approach or way of thinking about movies that um, you know uh, maybe wouldn't have been something I would have expected to see uh, going into the festival. So, I mean, I think the movie is quite good. The structure of it is um, very simple, almost actually in some ways to a fault, but it's really just a compilation of images of stars from other movies. And it moves chronologically from like early, early cinema of attractions, silence, uh, to modern day blockbuster uh, movies. And it, it's important, I think, that Lerf uh, draws almost all of his clips from popular cinema of one form or another. Uh, he has some films from Japan and Russia, but they're pretty uh the clips are pretty much sourced uh from big budget hollywood movies uh from across different eras of the studio system uh you know like, collectively more time in the film is lavished on uh, howard the duck uh austin powers the spy who shagged me and guardians of the galaxy just to mention a few uh i think then is actually spent on the few uh experimental films that are included uh and i think the goal of the film, it seems to me, is to kind of rescue moments of genuine like splendor from these otherwise dull or uh, kind of terrible movies. And somewhat surprisingly, I, I found the, the sum total quite uh, convincing. I mean, you can kind of occasionally identify the films by the soundtrack, which Lerf leaves wholly intact in the clips. So sometimes it will you know, cut out dialogue in the middle of a scene. Um, but occasionally you can kind of pick it up. And if you know what you're listening for, you can you can spot the reference. But after a few, you know, I don't know, maybe like half an hour, the movie's about 90 minutes long. So it's a little long, um, I think, for the concept. But after about 90 minutes, I sort of mostly just, or sorry, like 30 minutes, I found myself kind of slipping into the mood of the thing and finding it uh, genuinely a little bit kind of wondrous and not really paying attention, I think, to the source uh, sources of the clips, uh, or even tracking like the changes in the special effects styles, which you can see in the movie. I think that's one thing that is also interested in is seeing how the conception of stars and of space and the way that space and stars are uh, conceived through the special effects changes over time. So you can certainly approach the film from uh, that angle. Uh, but I mean, for me, it was just mostly, I think, a uh, a sort of experience of, uh, you know, kind of mood and uh, slipping into its kind of, uh, its wonder at these these images. And, and I watched a couple other uh, Johann Lerf shorts after I watched it, which I thought I just mentioned because, like, I think they're a very interesting contrast to Star. They're uh, also concerned with images of, like, light against darkness. One of them is, I think, called Twelve Explosions, and it's just a series of uh, images of, like, like a city 
at night, empty city streets where suddenly like a firework goes off in the middle of the street. Um, but those films that I watched have a kind of this like cold, almost like Fincherian vibe, like they're technologically sleek and kind of paranoid. Uh, and Star seems like he's kind of letting himself dream a little bit. And I read an interview with him where he talked about uh, the fact that it's a project that he sees going on for years where he'll just keep adding things to the films. He finds uh, other images uh, in films that he encounters. Uh, so on some level, I think I kind of just like the movie as this idea of this very, who's this kind of harsh experimental filmmaker, at least that's how he seems from his other films, uh, like kind of taking a load off at the end of the day and curling up with, I don't know, like a wrinkle in time or whatever, uh, just to like chill out and watch some star scenes so you can put him in his uh, experimental movie. So anyways, I, uh, I highly recommend star, uh, if anyone gets a chance to see it when it comes around and apparently it'll be different every time it plays cause he's just constantly updating it. So what I saw was different than I think what played in Berlin or wherever it had played previously. So, uh, it'll keep getting, it'll keep changing with each screening. I didn't actually get a chance to see it. I was planning to, but I ran out of time. But I did skip around a little bit and just trying to sample the sample the film. And I did find it really fascinating just to watch. And I'm not sure exactly, of course, I can't speak to whether this is his actual purpose, but I'm not sure if it's trying to reclaim these specific scenes from the blockbuster films, because I felt that just from looking through, I spotted a lot of different films, a lot of disparate films that weren't that came seemed to come from a variety of, of films i think the first one that i saw that or that i recognized that really caught my attention was from Theo anthony's rat film from last year yeah. I, I just heard the the voiceover that unmistakable voiceover and i was just immediately startled just and i immediately went to the credits to look if it was there and of course it was and i think that it's maybe more just to show how they're the same yet different across all these different mediums you see a lot of animation there as well and and of course through the actual experience i imagine the especially getting to around the halfway point it'd be a lot different but still i think there is something to this sort of constant this overall constant flow of images but then again with in the moment to moment sometimes the clips can be very short the the variety visible there is still is still exciting and, and jarring in a certain way. And I think that key to that is that there's nothing, you can only see the stars and the nebulas and various other, other celestial images. You can't see any spaceships or any, any figures in it. It's all about the, the landscape as it were of this, of the sky. And I think that in that there's something really beautiful about that. I had an extraordinarily dumb experience with this film. <laughs> and I will tell you about it because it makes me sound very, very stupid. Uh, we had a screener for this on Vimeo, right? Vimeo is mm. the like, best platform out there for screeners. And uh, normally I watch them on my TV, on, on the Vimeo app on my Roku, so I can watch it on the big TV. And, and this is a movie about stars, so I turn off all the lights, I watch on the big TV. And the image is kind of flashing, like flickering on and off. And I think, huh, that's weird. 
but you know, it's an experimental film about stars. Maybe it's flickering. I watched the entire movie. <laughs> it's flickering. There's like moments of like digital noise. Uh, the soundtrack is perfect all the way through. So it's like this weird like montage of like Star Trek and Star Wars plus like Russian sci-fi. There's all these voices and sounds, but no real images. Just occasional like brief flashes of stars. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is weird, uh, but I watched it all out, one hour and 40 minutes of it, and I got to the end credits, and the credits are flickering too, and I'm like, huh, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. So I, I, I go up and load it on, on my laptop, and uh, oh, there's supposed to be pictures. <laughs> so so I, I did not rewatch the movie correctly, so... But it, it, the experience I had of it, just entirely through the sound montage, was interesting. It just was not what it was intended to be. No, and well, if anything, the sound is actually the most, I think, jarring element of the movie. Like I said, I kind of got on its wavelength and was just sort of like lulled by it in a way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the sound is where you get the most uh, obvious cuts between, like, I think, different or that's where you notice the most disparate, uh, say, like genres that are bouncing up against each other. Or, you know, as Ryan was saying, some of the things that are maybe more experimental uh, suddenly bumping up against Howard the Duck or whatever. Um, you notice, that, I think, more in the sound. So uh, that's interesting. I think it would yeah, be almost an entirely uh, more jarring, uh, difficult experience just on the soundtrack and then having like, much of flickering images on the screen. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a very different experimental film, but mm -hmm. in that respect, it kind of, in terms of the sound, kind of remind me of the Guy Madden film from this year, The Green Fog, and the way that deals with sound. But though that this doesn't share that film's rapid fire credits approach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want I want to to go back and watch it all. I was just I was so tired and feeling so dumb that I just couldn't do it. Well, he'll have a new new version at some point, and then it <laughs> yeah. can be a whole experience. So. And, and also, I know how it ends now, because I heard the whole soundtrack. So. <laughs> it kind of spoiled it for me. Yeah. All right, uh, Ryan, what, uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, I'd like to talk about one of the finest films I've seen from the past few years, and which I'll get into huge debate about with, with Evan, Paul Schrader's First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke as a former military chaplain who's become a priest in upstate New York. And he's the, the church that he's serving in, the First Reformed Calvinist Church, uh, is approaching his 200th anniversary, and he's dealing with various uh, various problems. His his ailing body, which he, is not helped by his alcoholism and seemingly bottle a day uh, habit of drinking whiskey. His the death of his son during wartime, and his wife subsequently leaving him, and uh, and a member of his church played by Amanda Seyfried, whose name is whose character's name is Mary, and her husband, who is a environmentalist, a radical environmentalist. And in 
in tackling all of these, he undergoes a long, a very long, protracted, long, dark night of the soul. And in that, there is a, in just in exploring that, Schrader goes back to, he seems to harken back to so many different influences. The, in narrative terms, it seems to be most closely aligned to Bergman, especially Winter Light. In formal terms, it's it's very much in the transcendental style that he explored, especially Dreyer and Brisson. And just, I was on a moment-to-moment level, on a purely decision-by-decision basis, I think it's really one of the most extraordinary things I've seen from this decade in just what he does, how he where he puts his camera, how he chooses to move it, how he cuts every single little performance choice, I think is just really, really remarkable. The cinematography is by Alexander Dynan, and it's some of the most sumptuous, or not sumptuous, but some of the most oddly beautiful digital cinematography I've ever seen. Uh, I, I love how Schrader matches the more, it's I, I can only really describe it as modern performance style of Hawk and especially Seyfried with this very stately, uh, subdued, almost rigorously, uh, rigorously attuned uh, directorial style, and where the film ultimately goes, where how how deeply it goes into the character decisions, it's really stunning, but it also feels justified in every single way and i just i'll just say that i adored this film and i know that evan you did not well you you've primed me here but <laughs> that's, i think i'll say like there's a lot to like about first reformed uh so i'm not, i don't like hate the movie or anything but i think on some fundamental level the movie has these two stabs at sublimity these two kind of like spiritual gambles that Schrader takes. And I think both of them really need to sing in order for the whole movie to fully work. And personally, I just, I don't buy the first of the two moments where he goes really big. And so, Sean, I don't know if you actually care about spoilers, but I guess spoilers for for First Reform. But uh, they start to like levitate uh, in this one sequence, which other people have compared to Koyana Scotsy, but I mostly thought of the David Hasselhoff music video for his cover of Hooked on a Feeling, in which he traverses the globe by floating against a green screen of like stock photos of glaciers and tundras and whatnot. Um, but like more fundamentally, I just I don't understand exactly what's like motivating that moment. I don't think it organically emerges from Hawk's character, his consciousness in a way that I find convincing. Like it seems like a gesture that Schrader is uh, imposing on the material. And you know, I think nothing about what we've seen of his, of that character so far suggests that he's in a place emotionally or spiritually where he's like capable of such a grand vision even if the end of this whole sequence is like images of the world kind of broken and polluted uh which is i think more where his his uh headspace is at uh but i will say that the final scene which does have uh i think a somewhat similar 
uh, stab at something really big and uh, emotive uh, does work for me quite well. And I think I find the gesture of the final scene much more willing to court parody. Like the audience I saw, right. actually, most of them were like laughing at the final moments. And therefore, because it's, I think, more willing to to be parodic as a po- we're not exactly parodic, but it's willing to get close to that line uh, in a way that I think the the scene where they're levitating is meant to be taken, I think, pretty straightforwardly as like a very serious cinematic gesture. Because it goes close to that line, I find it more like admirably dangerous. And I think that the corporeality you get in that final gesture at the end of the movie is something that I wish the movie, the rest of the movie had uh I think paid more attention to it's like almost as if in those last uh moments like that Schrader finally kind of has like sublimated all the lessons that he's learned or maybe not learned uh from Bresson and his like focus on bodies and then takes it like further to this his own place of emotional hysteria which goes way beyond anything that Bresson ever would have done but I think it's like the one moment where that influence to me doesn't feel uh, schematic, but feels like it's born out of Schrader's real love for that Bersonian tradition and his own idiosyncratic interests in a way that I just think the rest of the movie never quite as successfully melds. But uh, I, because it ends with a scene that I really, really do like, I think I kind of came out of the movie uh, ultimately a little higher on it than I might have been uh, throughout, um, although I was like, he stole the final camera movement from Fassbender's Martha. So, uh, I think that for for whatever reason, I do. I think that even I, I won't say. Generally speaking, I'm not really one for saying that a a single scene or a single gesture is what makes the film what it is. I think that it's maybe more some of its parts. And I think that first reform definitely is that for me, because I think that just from the very first shot, this long, slow pan towards, or a track towards a, the, the church that Ethan Hawke is the, is the pastor at. I think that alone set me up for this aesthetic style that, just proceeded to further and further enrapture me throughout the film. And I think I think of, again, I think maybe I'm thinking more of moments than anything else, because I think this film is just some collection of so, so many moments, so many shots, but the, there is one where during this long conversation, almost debate between Hawk and Mary's husband, where it's the first camera movement in that scene where it's just a slow a slow dolly in on on Ethan Hawke's face as his voiceover in the diary entry that he's writing uh, says that in reference to this debate and his comparison to the to the wrestling in the desert from the Old Testament that he found it exhilarating I think moments like that they speak as much, if not even more, than the moments that are meant to be explicitly transcendent. I think that just in the style alone, it manages to get this this really detailed, this really profound feeling that I just found the film just delivered over and over in, in a way that really moved me. I, I think maybe First Reformed is 
one of those films that I can't put my finger on why I love it because it's so tied into its intrinsic values and details than anything else. I mean, yeah. I, oh, go ahead, Sean. Oh, I was just going to say I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. There's just like something about that the way that Schrader, the way that he frames things in, frames things in this movie, I think like it, it's obviously striking, but I think it's indicative of a career long problem that he's had, which traces like all the way back to his transcendental movie book, which is that I think he just like fundamentally has for his whole career. And especially in that book, like misread the spiritual or lack of, thereof content of the images of those particular filmmakers that he cites. And so when he creates these images, which I think in his mind are very like spiritually, morally weighty, like to me, they just, like they're just extra. <laughs> like it's just, he's, and he's just a little too extra for someone who's like 70 years old. <laughs> Like, it's a little bit the film of a kind of, like, a talented, but kind of a little bit embarrassing 20-something made by a septuagenarian. <laughs> I mean, I don't find that intrinsically a, a bad thing, though. I, I assume that you're, you're, you find that intrinsically bad, but I think that just maybe... It's not that, that I find it intrinsically bad. I think it's just that it, that's the thing that holds me back from having, like, <laughs> truly you know, odd experience that I think many are having with the film. Because like I said, I, I do overall like it and think it's, it's pretty good. But. Maybe. Maybe that's just a, that's a product of the concerns he's dealing with because they are very modern and the way that he, he tackles them are very modern. And especially the, the presence of a megachurch that is con basically controlling this, this small church and it's tied with, with, uh, an, an industrial system that is perpetuating this environmental destruction that that Mary's husband and eventually Hawk and Hawk's character himself uh, are struggling against, and the and I don't think that's necessarily incidental because so much of it is tied to the question of what does faith, what responsibility does faith have in the modern world, and I think I think Schrader in Everything that that engage, that that's engaged with deals with that in a way that feels profoundly ambivalent, and I think it has to be profoundly ambivalent in order to for it to really succeed. I think that Paul Schrader is a is a great uh, genre filmmaker who uh, is uh, pretensions to be Brisson or Dreyer only end up making him look like a buffoon. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I will, haven't seen any of, of Schrader's other directed films, though I've have heard uh, fantastic things about many of them. But this this just worked for me. Yeah, I just find it hard to take anything he he says or does seriously. But uh, he's he's one of my uh, 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 kryptonite directors. <laughs> I didn't realize I, you just fight like that. It that uh, toxic for you but he doesn't seem like your kind of guy but i, I mean he's not he's not guy. as bad as like soderberg but mm -hmm. he's, he's just not my thing 
And a lot of it is is just his his uh, ridiculous misreading of Ozu. Mm-hmm. And Brisson, I think. I mean, that's the the thing. I really think. Yeah. Well, not to get a whole sidetrack on Brisson here, but <laughs> like I really do think that Schrader has perpetuated something that to me is wholly false about those late Brisson films, which is that they're like deeply spiritual. When I actually think the entire arc of Brisson's career is a purgation of grace from the world of his movies and Schrader still seems and I think here more than anywhere else convinced that that style communicates some kind of grace whereas I think the entire the point of those late Bresson films is that the world has been abandoned and there is no more grace but I think that first reform is as much about the disappearance of grace as it is about grace I think it, the film can communicate those two things in equal tandem and I think that they should be communicated uh, equally, and I think that first reform manages this marvelously. Well, Ethan Hawke's good. I'll give you that. Oh yes, amazing, amazing performance. Sean, do you want to tell us what uh, you were a fan of? <laughs> well, I'll I'll go ahead and pick the the one film that all three of us saw, <laughs> and that is uh, Claire Denis' Let the Sunshine In, which. I really liked, and I think Evan, you did not like, and Ryan, you're somewhere in the middle. No, I, I loved it. Oh, you did. I, okay, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 a romantic comedy, more or less, with uh, Juliet Binoche as an artist who has a series of relationships with men who are not worthy of her. Uh, one is. Uh, kind of a mean, uh, arrogant uh, ass of a, was he like a financier, stockbroker or something? Mm -hmm. Some kind of, some kind of money guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another is uh, an actor who's uh, wholly uh, self-obsessed. And the third is uh, a guy who doesn't talk. (laughs) (laughs) But, but who, uh, who dances. And then, uh, and then the, her final meeting over the the end credits is with a, a psychic played by Gerard Depardieu, who's uh, in in the film's uh, funniest scene. I think, um, I think I think it's really successful at kind of melding uh, Denise, kind of the elements of her personal style, especially like the her focus on on like the textures of. Uh, of people of like their skin and their hair and their clothing and on the ways that they interact uh, underneath the the dialogue that they're actually reciting uh, with the the kind of structure and motifs of the romantic comedy or romantic drama uh, especially about a, an older woman I think it's uh, Claire Denis making a Nancy Myers film is really interesting <laughs> to me, and I think it's really successful. I think I think Benoche is, is great as as always, but uh, yeah, it 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 gives a a new perspective both on on Denis' work and on on the genre that uh, I will admit to being a, a big fan of. So, I, yeah, I'm I'm really happy with this. It's my favorite film that I saw at the festival. It's my second favorite, and I've. It's my second favorite, and I 
will say that I've only seen, besides this one, I've only seen Denise's first three films. I have been even slower in my marathon of her films than I expected. But I think that what really struck me is the just the way that she films these. I think every interaction or every every man that she courts, the, those interactions are shot in a different way. Sometimes it's for the for the scenes with the banker, especially this long conversation in bar that that's conveyed in these very long, swooping, continuously moving shots. And then with the actor, I think it's all in very close, almost too close. Uh, shot reverse shot of a of a sort, but I think that the the way that she manages to convey how she, especially Benoche, conveys how she acts in a certain in a different way or tries to convey a different part of herself in these interactions and with the various men that she courts is very strong and the how someone's identity can can be conveyed purely through interaction. I think that's just, it's very strong and conveyed in a way that always feels dynamic, that always feels changing and unpredictable in a way that feels productive. That, that's at least how I felt. I mean, I'm a huge Claire Denis fan. Uh, and I actually, I love her last film, Bastards, uh, which actually really think it, it's kind of a masterpiece. And the idea, so like the idea of her taking on another genre uh and applying her her style uh to it, it is very promising or was very promising to me I, I think unlike you sean it sounds like you to an extent brian as well i just like i had really had a hard time finding denis in the movie like i the way that she conceives and shoots the scenes to me although certainly more idiosyncratic than you'd find in a more traditional version of this same movie, like just don't have the same like haptic fragmentary quality that I usually uh, find in her films. Uh, where I do think the film is, is really interesting. I think Sean, you were getting at this is what it does with language. And I think the way that actually the Denis style, the like halting and fragmentary style is applied not as much to the images, but more to the dialogue. And I think the film does get a lot out of the way that the people in it talk, like they talk in fits and starts, they're falling over their words, they're interrupting their own thoughts, they leave sentences dangling. And that way of speaking within the context of a romantic comedy is actually something that is a somewhat new approach to the genre. I think, at least in my mind, the romantic comedies that I really love tend to be uh, filled with like witticisms and barbs, like thinking of the kind of like Lubitsch lineage romantic comedies. And I think where Denis is doing the most interesting work for me in the film is uh, bringing what seems to me a very, I wouldn't say realistic, because Denis is not a realist, but a very, um, attentive ear to the way that people actually speak and uh, using that kind of language in this context uh, is interesting. I just, I wish that I found the visual uh, choices that she, were make, she was making uh, more striking. Yeah, I think, 
I think there's like a, a productive uh, dissonance between between the dialogue and the image in that parallels the the disconnect between between Denis and and the genre that she's working in. And I think the that the 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 smashing up of of all of these disparate elements makes for something new. Um, I'm kind of th I'm thinking about this in. Uh, the context of of Hong Sang Soo, um, we know that that Hong and and yes. are are mutual admirers, uh, and I can see this as kind of her version of something like uh, like Grass, like some of the conversations in Grass, like uh, mm -hmm. that one the one with the banker where the camera is moving back and forth, uh, is is very similar to camera movements that, that Hong will, will utilize, uh, instead of cutting, he'll just pan back and forth between, between man and woman having a conversation. Uh, and I mean, it's not the, this movie isn't as funny as a Hong Sang Soo film, nor is it, uh, but it is, uh, uh, similarly kind of, uh, uh self critiquing, because while while Binoche is like extraordinarily sympathetic, she's also kind of a pathetic figure. She's she's so desperate to find love, and she keeps looking for it in all of these terrible places. That it's it's it it it, uh, it highlights the the absurdity of the romantic comedy heroine. Uh, how how desperate she is for love, and that kind of desperation that lies at the heart of of the genre, and how it can't ever really be satisfied. How there's always well, just another guy waiting to exploit her. And that's what makes the ending so funny. Because I, I don't think I find it quite as funny throughout as either of you did, but the ending is quite funny because Depardieu is basically giving her this like life advice that I think, with just a slight slightly less jaundiced eye it would play as the kind of like pablum that it is on the surface but like he's very clearly like trying to get in her pants as he's like talking <laughs> about the spiritual advice that he's giving her uh, and so yeah the extent to which the game just keeps being played even as literally the credits roll um yeah it's it's not a, an unamusing movie i'll certainly yeah i mean and even the and even the, the scene that's designed or uh, on the surface would seem to be designed to be the most, the most freeing and the most, uh, most almost transcendent where she dances to, to Etta James's at last. And then she's approached by a man who dances with her. That is in context. It seems just as pathetic and, and sort of self critiquing as the rest of the film. And it very, and, and this is after something like three or four, uses of at last or references to it throughout the film. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, on some level, I do think that uh, that scene is, the dancing scene is like the key scene to, uh, for me anyways, to like lock into why I both do think that there's something interesting going on here and I'm just like somewhat a little bit uh, unsure that Denise pulling like the trick off entirely because uh, I guess we were we were all at the same screening for that one and people react I think very strangely 
I think, to that scene. Like, I do think it plays as something humorous, but I'm not sure I agree, Ryan, that it's actually the moment, a moment where she is herself kind of being pathetic again. Like, actually, it's the one moment that I think we're supposed to, like, recognize that she's really being swept off her feet. And Denis is clearly playing with the image of the actor who uh, is her dance partner in this. He has a sort of, like, craggy face he's not traditionally handsome uh and it's a french marble man (laughs) (laughs) that's a very accurate description well and and he also is like working class like that kind of comes up later in the movie anyways like all that stuff's just like swirling around in that scene and then you've got the edda james song which is providing this kind of like swooning romantic thing and it's just it's like a lot of ideas happening at once and at least the audience we saw really jumped on the comedy piece of all the ideas floating around. And I think part of the reason that people found it funny and didn't really know how else to react is I'm just not sure that Denis in that moment, like synthesizes all the different things that are happening in the way that she does in say some of her other musical sequences in her films, which are often, you know, the best things in her films, like of course, Baudrillard or um, uh, the, the scene, I can't remember the name of the song in um, 35 Shots of Rum, where like all the glances are so pregnant with meaning and, you know, all the emotions that are at play in the film are exposed with the music. And here it's like, I can kind of see her doing that, but it just, I'm not sure exactly that all of that stuff melds ultimately. But Yeah, I don't think it's a, it's a synthesis scene in the way that like 35 Shots is. I think it's it's the high point of the film's romanticism, which I think it's equally romantic and anti-romantic, and it's it's one right. pole, as opposed to like some of the fights, which would be like the opposite poles. And I don't know that there's ever kind of one big combinatory scene in the film, unless it's the the Depardieu interview. But even that, I think we already have mentioned the ways that that yeah. isn't actually uh, providing a, a synthesis of these things. It's it's doing two things at once and clandestinely what's happening under the surface is uh, yeah. not what you're seeing. So, I mean, I, I think that... Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think she ever, she ever makes a choice one way or the other towards being a romantic or not being a romantic. Like, it's... She never resolves the, the contradiction. Yeah, I mean, I, which maybe a flaw. I don't know, but I, I no. I mean, one again, I think it may just be what I was expecting. Sure. I think from from that scene uh, in particular, and I think the way that it doesn't necessarily function in the same way as her other similar sequences, um, maybe why I was a little uh, underwhelmed by it. But I, I I like your reading that the movie is essentially like anti synthesis in a way uh i think i might find more out of that uh experiencing it again uh with that in mind right on well let's uh let's move on to another movie that you saw evan okay well i'm gonna pick uh a pair of movies here although i'm only gonna touch on one of them briefly uh but i thought i'd just talk about the two repertory screenings uh that i attended at this year's festival uh i'll touch on the first one uh just briefly like i said uh, which is sancho the bailiff uh because i really don't have words uh uh 
it was the third time that I had seen it, I think. The first time I'd ever seen it in a theater. It might actually be the first Mizuguchi movie I've seen in a theater. Uh, and it remains, for me, like one of the uh, the great movies. It's really one of the, the few films. I find few films, or really any works of art, as moving as I find Sancho the Bailiff. And on some level, the way that it seems to just encompass the entire world uh, within it, like alone, it alone kind of justifies the entire medium for me. So uh, I don't know that I have much more to say uh, beyond that because it is an overwhelming experience, but seeing it on a big screen um, was, was pretty great. uh, but anyways, what I really wanted to talk about, I think, was uh, The Crime of Monsieur Lange, which is uh, a Jean Renoir film uh, from 1936, which I had not seen before, and which I don't think, for me, is a great Renoir, but it does something that I really love in movies uh, generally, which is it takes place and circumnavigates the entire space of uh, this tenement apartment building that also doubles as a publishing house and uh Renoir details the whole space uh in I think some of his most beautiful uh camera movements the film uh like or the camera will basically crane in and out of windows go between floors windows will open camera will go out the window across the courtyard into another room like on some level it's just the most striking uh formal uh experiment that i think renoir ever really uh made i I think maybe uh some maybe something like the river and its play with color um is is something that's uh you know maybe almost as formalist as this is uh but certainly of of his 30s films this is uh, one of the more um uh, strikingly conceived uh, films of his that I've seen. Uh, the The story of it is, I think, where maybe I, I think it, it doesn't quite live up to the great run raw films of the period. It basically focuses on all these people that live in this kind of tenement complex uh, and who work in the building for the publishing house. And uh, they work for this kind of shady con man boss figure who's uh, played uh with, I think, uh, actually, I can't remember the actor's name, but the actor uh, clearly is having a lot of fun playing this role and is, is very fun to watch. He then disappears from the movie for a while due to a bunch of uh, kind of convoluted plot reasons. Uh, and then the workers who were exploited under him take over the publishing house as a collective and run it and are very successful in publishing one of the uh, workers, really the, the kind of young protagonist of the film's, uh, Western, like cowboy Western stories. Um, and the film uh, basically charts their uh, success as a collective and then the way that that collective is interrupted uh, upon the return of the the boss in this case. Uh, and I think Renoir is very attuned to the, the political movements uh, of the time uh, and is very interested in those class divisions. I just think they're maybe not handled with quite the same grace uh, as they are in something like Rules of the Game. Um, but uh, I was very, very taken with what he's doing just uh, sort of on a formal level. Uh, and I think the last thing that I wanted to mention was that if anyone gets a chance to see this in a theater, please wait until it comes out. <laughs> because the DCP that I saw of this 
despite I think the film's many formal qualities, was uh, one of the most hideous that I've ever seen. It looked like the thing was scanned at like 360p or something like that. I, was, was it the DCP or was it the projection? Well, uh, that's a good question. I got I tweeted that out after I saw the movie and got some responses from a few people who had seen it elsewhere and had similar concerns. So I do think it's the DCP. Sancho okay. uh, the Bailiff looked a little muddy and a little gray, uh, but I saw it in the same theater. Uh, and though I don't think it's as stunning as seeing it on a print, like it certainly looked fine and I wasn't distracted. Uh, this looked to me just like a, a poorly rendered DCP. Underneath the DCP is very clearly a, I think, a beautiful restoration. And so when it is put out on Blu-ray and it's presumably coming from that that like raw source uh, of the restoration, I think it will look very good. But um, I was quite disappointed with the way the DCP looked. That's too bad. I, I really wanted to see that, and uh, I could not because... If I remember right, uh, Seattle decided to shut down I-5 on the weekend. <laughs> so, yeah, that was fun. Brian? Oh, I'm not sure whether to go with the film that I loathe with every fiber of my being or the film that I just saw that I really liked and that all three of us actually have seen, but not all at the same festival. Talk about Which would you guys prefer? Oh, both? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. S sounds good. <laughs> Do the one you hated okay. first. Oh, yes. Absolutely. End on a positive. <laughs> well, this, so I'll go with, so to start with, the one of the most wrong-headed and ahistorical and misunderstanding of the meaning films I've seen in probably ever, but certainly of the century, Les Bris du Table, a film about about Jean -Luc I think you mean Godard Montemore. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> I mean, I, I like Cohen Media Group, so I, I'm fine with them renaming it. And but uh, for for purity purposes, I guess I'll go with Le de Table. Redoubtable. Le de Table, directed by Michel Hazanavicius, who I was informed during the press. A press event by Evan uh, Sif are apparently the biggest partisans of him specifically. Uh, apparently they were the only ones to play his otherwise reviled The Search from a few years ago. Uh, but this was for inexplicably praised by a lot of people. Uh, maybe, I'm not sure if it was all the same people who loved the artist, but uh, regardless, I this is about Godard during the during his late 60s period, uh, around the time of La Chinoise to his, the beginnings of his collaborations with the Tika Veritov group. And it primarily focuses on, or is primarily from the viewpoint of his, his wife, Anne Wiesemski, who was a, who acted in La Chinoise and she started acting on Balthazar by by Bresson and went on to a successful acting career, including a film that Evan and I saw roughly concurrent with this time of Sif, um, Keytrop and Bass, which is much better than this. But <laughs> but I every it's difficult to encapsulate what exactly is wrong with this film. And I, for the record, I didn't exactly hate 
the experience of watching it, but just everything that this film stands for is just is is absolutely hideous because it seems to put forth the ideal of cinema that is utterly without thought or reasoning behind the way it looks or its aesthetic other than simple imitation or a certain chicness that is superficially attractive. And the way that Hazan Vicious goes about conveying this is by seemingly trying to ape Godard's style to a certain extent, but really it seems to be a hodgepodge of various influences that could be reasonably construed as art house or slightly off of the mainstream. He seems to incorporate really a lot of techniques or stylistic techniques that they invokes for a single scene or so that don't seem uh, from what I've seen of late 60s Godard, which is almost all of his films. It doesn't seem to have any forebears uh, in Godard's actual work. Like he has a negative reversal that I don't recall seeing in any late 60s Godard and the same for a Annie Hall, Woody Allen-esque use of subtitles to convey the the characters' inner thoughts while they're speaking a different line of dialogue. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg and how Hassan Vicious tries to use Godard. It seems to, he seems to be more than attacking Godard. He seems to be attacking the entirety of, of thinking cinema, of cinema that wants to be politically engaged. And he seems to only, even though he makes many jokes about having characters come up to say to Godard and say, Oh, I loved, uh, I loved contempt. I loved breathless. When will you make films like that again? He's, he, even though he's trying to, he's trying to uh, have his cake and eat it too. He's trying to be engaged with art cinema and yet he wants to pull back from it. And in doing so, he makes a very deeply confused film that just doesn't really work. And the way that he, tries to critique Godard for his mistreatment of Wiesemski while also uh, having her nude in so many scenes in ways that don't feel re revealing or enlightening in any particular way is just really, really terrible. Uh, it's a film that, watching the film, I I legitimately didn't couldn't tell if Hassanovicius had seen more than maybe three Godard films. And he even, he recreates a scene from La Chinoise by judging from that recreation, I couldn't tell if he had seen even that. It's that level of just utterly reprehensible approach to film history. It's, it's really terrible. Yeah, I mean, all that basically applies to the artist too. <laughs> Actually, that is, yeah, quite true. <laughs> I mean, I... I like the artist when I saw it, but that was a while ago. Who knows? Uh, but this is, I think maybe the, because it's at least superficially trying to engage with a single, a uh, single artist or a single director or a single time period to the extent, to the detailed extent or quote unquote detailed extent that this tries, I think maybe that makes this, the flaws of this that much more apparent. Uh, but I think all of the flaws of, Rue de can be summed up in its use of intertitles or chapter titles, uh, one of which is Pierrot Le Maprice, uh, which I, I can't begin to fathom what thought, if any, went into that, that choice. Um, Pierrot Contempt. <laughs> the the subtitles translate as Pierrot the Contempt, which is even more baffling. It's, it's, it's more... almost like Michelle Hazanovicius does not speak French. 
<laughs> I wouldn't go. I wouldn't claim that. But um, but to go on to the actually excellent and wonderful film that we have all seen, though F and a gathering. This is a recurring theme here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, um, but it is Good Manners, uh, a film that played in new directors new films and that's why it was on my radar um by directors marco dutra and juliana rojas a brazilian film that that plays close to that at once is it seems to be a film that tries and i think successfully goes for so many different things it has many elements of romance of coming of age of horror trappings of course those last two play into each other very handily but i it's about a the the main character or the focus character for most of it is clara played by isabel zua who is who is a seemingly lower class woman who has trained to be a nurse though she didn't complete her degree um who is going for a housekeeping job for anna a a fairly high class woman living in a large apartment and who is expecting and Anna eventually hires Clara as her housekeeper as her live-in housekeeper and they eventually uh, embark on a relationship and after a after a halfway point switch that I won't really I won't necessarily go into Clara is um Clara becomes the adoptive mother of Joel, Anna's, Anna's son, who is a werewolf. And the rest of the film deals with his coming of age and his trying to grapple with this, uh, with this emergence of his, of his werewolf tendencies while Clara tries to protect him uh, through some f fairly harsh methods. And I think that it manages, what surprised me maybe most is just how detailed and how oddly precise a lot of the direction can feel because it, though it is it's never trying to be too too locked down in the way it shoots things there are still some moments that that really are surprising and how I guess precise I'm not, I'm having trouble thinking of another word but a lot of the I think there are maybe the most immediately striking thing that to me was the use of these gorgeous, gorgeous matte paintings. And I don't think I've seen anything like them in modern film and just, and that immediately sets this tone that is really matte, um, maintained throughout. And it's a, it, it surprised me. A lot of this film really surprised me and the fidelity to the characters and especially the, the performances by these, uh, by the, these three central performers are really impressive to me. And I, I really, really fell for this film. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit too when I saw it in, uh, it played a VIF, so I saw it last fall. So uh, my memory of it isn't going to be as good as yours. But uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And I actually, at the time I saw it, I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know there was any uh, lycanthropy going to be going on so you can imagine how surprising it was with every new twist and, and development that the story takes it's it's all very unexpected uh 
which is which is a lot of fun in theater. Uh, I don't know. I think there's there's some kind of parallel between the the class situation of the two women and the two halves of the film with uh, werewolfism, and I, as I recall, that never really kind of goes anywhere. It gets really worked out. It's oh, just kind of an element in the film. I, I feel like the inverse, like that's my big problem with the movie is that I find it the relationship between the genre stuff and the the class uh, elements is interested in just incredibly schematic and like I, I can't really tell what aside from slightly more uh, confident compositions and like better color grading and the nice matte paintings which I also like like separates this from the kind of like BS horror movies that people quote unquote horror movies that people like love at Sundance or whatever. Elevated horror. Like whatever. Yeah. It's like <laughs> signaling its intelligence all over the place. And it, I think it makes like the mortal sin of these kind of art house indie horror movies, which is that it is deeply afraid of letting subtext be subtext and is constantly making subtext text just as if it's afraid that at any moment you might like wake up and realize you're watching a horror movie. And so even though the narrative developments might be like surprising, I think the final line it draws between the class stuff and the genre stuff is basically just to me, a very kind of tired conception of like the monster as outsider, as like a stand in for a marginalized group, which is really just like a Guillermo del Toro movie, but not ugly. Well, no, I think I think the uh, the monster in this case would be the rich, except the rich the, woman. That's the werewolf. Except that the woman who's rich is the the man who is the father. Like she meets in like a dive bar. Is she? I think if I remember correctly, is like oh, okay. running away from her father or something like that. Her father doesn't like whatever situation she's in with the pregnancy. So she's kind of like in a more lower class space where she becomes pregnant with the werewolf. And then the final image of the film is basically of the, the caretaker, uh, who's a black woman, uh, and the werewolf like standing side by like, they literally, she he literally like puts his werewolf hand in hers, which is like the image on the poster, which kind of like that's the whole movie right there. And then they like stand up and face the the screaming hordes of people outside together, like these two, you know, marginalized figures. And like, it's all very admirable. I just, on some level, like I just, nothing was surprising to me about where it uh, finally weaved those kind of threads together. Okay, I didn't that, find that necessarily makes, the... that that makes a big difference. I did not remember about the uh, the dive bar thing. I. I think maybe the overall the overall structure and story of this film maybe didn't surprise me, but I think I was just really taken with the with just how involved with the characters because for the first hour or so, it's almost entirely these two women in in this big apartment just interacting with each other, slowly getting to know each other, and I think that makes a a huge difference from the sort of quote unquote art house horror films of of modern times i think that it because it's so involved that allows it to uh to engage with so many different disparate genres uh, so well and i don't think that the maybe because i was so taken with this this 
established uh, relationship that I didn't really find the the class structure or the class themes overwhelming in any way. I think it's just all in the in the interactions in the slow getting to know each other. And I think that even though there's a time skip and it's clear that Clara and Joel have grown up together or that Joel's grown up, grown up with Clara, I think that even so it's still about discovery. It's still about finding, uh, finding each other and understanding each other's situation in a way that really, really works on me. I mean, I will say, I think the first, I think you're right that the, especially the first half when it really is almost like, uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the guy's name, the guy who made like Aquarius, um, oh, Phil Ho. Yes. Yeah. Like it actually reminds me almost of like neighboring sounds in the way that it's like detailing this apartment community, uh, well, I guess not a community, but the apartment space and these right. people in it and their class relations with each other and like all that you know, uh, context is there. And I do think it handles that stuff fairly well. I, so I, I don't disagree with that. I think it's really the second half of the movie where almost all my issues with it emerge. That's fair. If it just kind of stayed in that more contained environment, uh, both thematically and spatially, I, I probably would have liked the movie significantly more. Uh, also, and I, I will just say that the that the more unconventional elements of its form, especially the map paintings, and especially these two almost musical style singing sequences are just really, really lovely. And I think that they really set a tone that seems out of this time. It's not exactly, it's not exactly uh, primal or anything like that though. But I think that it just really, gives a different atmosphere to the film that works really, really well. And I think that the inclusion of certain elements like the this mall that becomes a crucial, a crucial location late in the film, the juxtaposition of those two things are, I think, productive and they intersect with the way that the film's relationships develop in a very interesting way. I think it's the second best film of the decade about uh, raising a werewolf child. <laughs> werewolf children or wolf children. Wolf uh, children being, yeah. being the best, of course. Yeah. Uh, I cried during wolf children, so I, I didn't. I've cried. Didn't cry during multiple cry. times in multiple viewings <laughs> of wolf children. Sadly, I've not seen it. I, I will. Uh, one final note: I do. I do want to object somewhat to Sif's treatment of this film i guess because they placed it in the in the wtf section of the programming and while this is i yeah i'm not i'm not opposed to classifying this as a horror film i do think that putting it just under that broad of a classification does this film very uh, a, an ill service uh, for sure and i yeah, think that it, more people should have seen it it seems to be another instance of uh them reading the synopsis than <laughs> the movie. Yeah, it is not a midnight movie at all. Not at all. And it's, it, and it's over two hours, which makes it even less of a midnight movie. Be falling asleep. <laughs> well, Sean, what's your 
your next film. All right. Well, I'll finish up uh, with. Um, uh, I will. I will mention a, a Chinese movie. Uh, like I said, the the almost all of the movies I saw at SIF this year were part of the the China Stars program, and I'm actually writing about them all for movie that'll be up in a few days probably from when this this podcast posts but um i'll pick out one of uh one of my favorite films from the program is uh vivian chu's angels wear white which i believe has actual u.s distribution and will probably be out sometime later this summer um and will probably be marketed poorly (laughs) <laughs> to to capitalize on kind of Me Too hype uh, in that it, it's a film about uh, a young girl who witnesses a, uh, a younger girl uh, get uh, sexually assaulted in the hotel that, that uh, the older girl works in. The older girl is like 15 and the young girl who gets uh, attacked is 12. And uh, she's working in the hotel and sees this older man push his way into the little girl's room and records the security camera footage of it on her telephone. And then a couple of days later, when the man is accused of rape and the police come around and are interviewing people, the 15-year-old doesn't say anything. She withholds all of her evidence. And the kind of the central mystery of the film is why she does that. And what, uh, what the film is about is, is why a girl would, would, would do such a thing. Why, why she would not report clear evidence of, of rape when she has the chance. And the answer is because all of the, the systems of power, the systems of control in, in contemporary China and, basically in in everywhere in the world uh conspire to tell her not to that there is no advantage to her that she will end up being victimized and no good will come from her confronting power and to uh dramatizes this in like really interesting kind of oblique ways hewing to the perspectives of these two young girls the the 12 year old victim and the and the 15 year old and it's it's a harrowing film at, i mean as this subject matter would be but it's i don't know it's it's so well done that uh I don't know. I think it's. I think it's really powerful, and I think that people should see it. And it's not just about you know. It's an issue movie. Yeah, it's not. A, it's not a social problem movie. I mean, it is. It's like all of society is a problem movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like you're not. You're not going to feel like you have furthered the movement by going to see this film. You're. You're going to be depressed. <laughs> Yeah, this is a movie that I wish I had gotten to. I think for some of the reasons you've highlighted, I couldn't quite find, I think, the right uh, mood to approach it. But uh, it does sound like a really interesting uh, film. And uh, I wish I had got to see her, her previous film as well, I think, when that uh, made the rounds a few years ago. Um, so she's definitely, she definitely seems like a filmmaker that I should find some time to uh, 
uh, explore here. Yeah, that that uh, her first film, uh, Trap Street, uh, played in Vancouver in I think 20, 2014, 2012, 2014. Um, and that one is also about uh, about systems of control, and but much more explicitly, it's about like uh, this kind of surveillance state and secret agents manipulating the lives of these these two young people. Uh, this is it's much the the control systems are much more ubiquitous and much more subtle um, in in Angels Wear White and and much more terrifying because of that. Like it's it's really kind of a, a, a hopeless film that nonetheless is hopeful. Mm -hmm. The other I guess I was kind of wondering too, Sean, like I not having seen the film, obviously, but having read a little bit about it, like it does doesn't really sound to me like a film that's easy to place in any kind of like obvious uh, movement in like what's happening in Chinese cinema or a particular like legacy or uh, you know filmmaking style in Chinese cinema. So I guess I was curious where, if any, if anywhere, you kind of locate this. Uh, in relation to the other films that are coming out of China at the moment, or is it very much its own, I mean, own there, thing? There are social problem films being made in China all the time, uh, and they get shown. Like, there's this myth in the West that that no films get made in China that criticize anything having to do with China because of the censorship regime, and that's really not true. I mean, there are there are social problem films, and some of them do get banned, and and some of them don't. Uh, I had to like pick a film that is similar to this. Uh, I think Peter Chan's Dearest, which played oh, okay. a few years mm -hmm. ago, uh, is is somewhat like uh, Angels Wear White in that all all of these films are they're about like individual cases and individual problems and individual characters, but they all also interrogate the system as a whole because it, you can't kind of separate those. We do in American films and in Hollywood films, we make films about like individual heroes overcoming the system. Uh, and it's like a, a particularly American myth. Whereas in, in China, the whole kind of propagandic ethos of the country is, is a collective. So any kind of social problem film is going to be a collective social problem and it's going to address itself to systemic causes in a way that American cinema does not. And I think th those films are, are being made in China and they are actually being shown there. Trap Street wasn't, as I recall, and I'm not mm -hmm. sure if uh, Angels Wear White, I think Angels Wear White was, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe in Jaws Festival? Maybe I mean it was it was nominated for uh, like a whole bunch a whole slew of Golden Horse Awards, which which oh. is Taiwan and not and not China, uh, depending on your opinion of the uh, <laughs> one China policy. That's beyond the scope of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean there there are films like this being made in, in in China. We don't we don't get to see them outside of of festivals for the most part, but uh, yeah, I mean, they're there. It's, 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 it's part of a tradition. I mean, and there's like the Wang Bing documentaries oh, are right. like massively critical of, of the Chinese system and he keeps making them and they keep playing 
Like nobody, nobody's put it long being under under house arrest or anything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess just like dearest is a, I think a helpful uh, reference point because uh, I mean Wang Bing though certainly obviously very critical is yeah not uh, not working in any kind of mode that's amenable to even like art house distribution really mm -hmm. yeah um, well or even you know Zhao Ko's films like a, a Touch of Sin was was okayed to play in in China it just never did. So mm -hmm. it's like it's not a movie that was banned, but it, but it's still around. But Mountains Made Apart is is critical as well of of China mm -hmm. and, and all of his other films. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's 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 hard to talk in, in general terms about Chinese censorship because there's like certain lines you can't cross and certain lines you can, and it's then filmmakers in particular don't always know where those lines are. So. They end up, you know, making mistakes. But that, but that happens in in all cinemas. There are systems of censorship, but China's is just worse. Yeah. Although, uh, doing research for this column, I, I found out something funny that uh, you know Chapman To, the mm -hmm. uh, the actor and, and director. Apparently, uh, you know he's he's very outspoken in in support of like Taiwanese independence and also the the umbrella protests and. In Hong Kong, and he got himself banned from from mainland China along with Anthony Wong, and apparently Wang Jing, uh, like publicly announced on like Facebook or something that he was like deleting uh, Chapman To and Anthony Wong from his uh, his friends list on Facebook and removing all their info <laughs> from his phone because he did not approve of their uh, their pro democracy activism. If anyone in Hong Kong was going to be a reactionary <laughs> asshole, it was going to be Wang Jing. <laughs> but, yeah. That's just hilarious. Like, good for Chapman Toe. Didn't Chapman Toe have a film that he directed at SIF, too? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's why it ended up in 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 my column, uh, The Empty gotcha. Hands, which oh, is sure. uh, which is solid. It's it's not bad at all. It's got a very good performance from uh, Steffi Tang, Tong, former teen pop idol in Hong Kong. No, it's good. Yeah, the, the I was I was really happy on the whole with the the China Stars program. The only one of the movies that I didn't like is the one that won the Golden Horse Best Picture. So I think uh, I think they did a, a great job this year, despite not having uh, an archival Shanghai film like they've had in the last uh, the last three years. Yeah, I think it was even more than that. I mean, they've been they've been doing that for a while. I think so. Yeah. So uh, yeah, on the on the whole, I mean, given that almost all of the SIF films I saw were were from this program, it was a a, a good SIF for me. Just a, a a brief one. As for me, generally speaking, well, I'm a grumpy one here, so it's fine. <laughs> You you only like the star movie, right? Uh huh. Uh, I mean, I liked First Reform, but it was more fun to argue with Ryan than just. Uh, <laughs> you know. All right. So I think, unless anything, anyone has anything else they want to add, I think that will be it. Um, not particularly. Uh, the the day after was my favorite non First Reformed film of Civ twenty eighteen. 
the, the day after did not play at Civ 2018. It played it played in Seattle during the <laughs> running of Civ 2018. I'm I'm counting it. Hey, I, I saw I saw Solo and Infinity War during Civ 2018. <laughs> Good movies. Good movies. Yeah. They'll be featured in a future uh, rendition of Star. I'm sure. So it's <laughs> kind of like they were part of Civ. All right, uh, I have no idea when there will be another Francis Farmer show. Uh, probably not until... Have you guys finished The Last of the Mohicans yet? Yeah. <laughs> hey, I finished Last of the Mohicans <laughs> like a year ago. All right, and Melissa still has not. Although it still is currently reading on the Goodreads <laughs> profile, so... Uh, yeah, probably not until Vancouver. Uh, which, Ryan, you will not be going to because you will be in Los Angeles. Congratulations. Thank you very Bye much. Uh, Evan, I think you're thinking about there. That. You will be there? Yeah. All right, so we'll probably do this again in, uh, what is that, four months from now? Four and a half months? Like that. Okay, well, thank you for listening. Uh, 